All right, welcome to episode 87 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Robert Billet. He's an American environmental attorney from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Billet is known for the lawsuits against DuPont on behalf of plaintiffs from West Virginia. Billet has spent more than 20 years litigating hazardous dumping of the chemicals perfluorooctanoic acid and perfluorooctane sulfonic acid. His story was then adapted into the critically acclaimed film, Dark Waters. Welcome, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. And so, Robert, before we begin, I guess, kind of going into the chemicals and the lawsuits, can you tell us a little bit about your background in law and in particular how you became interested in environmental law? Sure. I uh, actually started my legal career 30 years ago in uh, 1990, uh, right out of Ohio State, and joined the law firm of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister in Cincinnati, uh, where I'm still practicing to this day. Um, uh, I actually just I joined the environmental group at that time back in 1990, even though, you know, really no environmental scientific background of any kind. It's just that I, uh, when I was in law school, my last year, there was a class in environmental law that I thought was interesting. So when I saw that the firm had an environmental group, I thought, why not? I would, I would join the environmental group and, and uh, uh, see what that was like. So I've been doing that ever since. So interesting. And so what sparked your interest in environmental law out of all, like I said, of all of the potential fields? Uh, it just seemed a little more real world to me and a little more concrete than things like, uh, I don't know, uh, abstract uh, uh, concepts. And I particularly did not want to do things that involve numbers like uh, tax <laughs> or anything of that nature. So uh, um, uh, just uh, seemed like an interesting field. Yeah. And how did all this uh, get started? How did, get, how did you get involved in the DuPont case? And how, how did you come to discover that there were dangerous chemicals in, in the water in West Virginia? Started about 22 years ago uh, when a farmer named Wilbur Tennant called me um, and was starting to complain about cows dying on his property at the time. And that's not the kind of thing that I was typically dealing with back then. Uh, a lot of what I was doing was helping our corporate clients uh, try to navigate all the different federal and state environmental rules and regulations. So dying cows was not exactly the kind of thing I was, I was dealing with. But um, mm. he mentioned that this was going on on property outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is where my mom's family was from, where we had spent a lot of time when I was a kid. So uh, then he mentioned he'd gotten my name from my grandmother. So I paid a little closer attention and found out he had been talking to his neighbor who happened to have been on the phone with my grandmother earlier that day, who mentioned that I was an environmental attorney. And Mr. this, this individual whose name was Wilbur Tennant, uh, Mr. Tennant was looking for an attorney that could help him figure out um, why his cows were dying. He felt fairly convinced there was something in white foaming water that was coming out of a landfill right next to his property and getting into the creek that his cows were drinking from. But Nobody there locally really wanted to talk to him about it because the landfill was owned by DuPont, which was one of the biggest employers in the town at the time. So he was desperately trying to find somebody outside of that town who would talk to him and help him. Um, so he had gotten my name, placed that call. And uh, given that this was coming through my grandmother, I said, sure, you know, I'd be happy to see what information you've got. I, you know, I'd t I'll be happy to take a look into it. And we invited him up and he and his wife 
drove the three hours or so up to Cincinnati, and that was back in the fall of 1998. And it was through taking on that case that we came to, to discover uh, what was basically an unknown, unregulated chemical was in that water uh, that the cows were drinking. And we eventually discovered was in drinking water pretty much all over the planet. Uh, so we really started to un uncover a pretty widespread major environmental health threat that had gone unnoticed and unreported to the rest of the world. Wow, wow. And were you skeptical initially when he brought the claims to you? Well, yeah, you know, uh, I was, it was hard for me to believe that there could be some, some unknown uh, dangerous toxic material here, particularly since this was a landfill that was regulated by the state of West Virginia. Um, and I understood that the state required permits and required that uh, regulated, you know, hazardous toxic materials uh, would need to be monitored. And those, there would be reports sent into the state. And this was DuPont after all you know, one of the world's most sophisticated chemical companies. And, um, uh, you know, we had, I, we had never represented DuPont, but I, I knew their attorneys from other um, uh, cleanup sites all over the country where we were um, working with them. We would be there representing our clients and they would be there representing DuPont, arguing over who would clean, how, who would pay how much to clean up various waste sites all over the country. So I knew that these folks understood the law, they, were, they understood the science. Uh, so to, to believe that there could be some, um, you know, high levels of a dangerous toxic material leaking out of a regulated landfill like this was, was difficult for me to, to believe at first, but ended up being absolutely correct. Wow. Yeah, and so and what is Teflon and why, was the, why were these chemicals necessary for it? Yeah, the, the particular chemical that we discovered uh, that was in this landfill, about 7,000 tons of sludge contaminated with this chemical was something called PFOA or perfluorooctanoic acid. Um, it completely man-made chemical, did not exist on the planet prior to World War II. It invented by 3M and DuPont was one of the primary purchasers of this chemical from 3M. And they were using it not as an ingredient, so, uh, so to speak, but as a processing aid in making Teflon. And it just so happened that the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility was located right down the road from Mr. Tennant's property in West Virginia along the Ohio River. And this landfill was accepting waste from that manufacturing plant. So what uh, DuPont was using this chemical in the, in, the, in the manufacture of Teflon going back to 1951. And this was decades before the US EPA even came into existence. You know, that didn't happen until 1970. Um, and this was a pretty unusual chemical. Um, again, completely man-made. It had uh, this unusual traits of, I mean, unusual chemical structure of carbons attached to fluorine which made it incredibly difficult to break down in the environment. Um, so uh, it had incredibly uh, wide useful purposes in manufacturing like in the Teflon process, but also had some disturbing characteristics because of that strength and inability to break down in the manufacturing process. It also didn't break down in the environment. Yeah. 
So once it got out into the world, it essentially would not break down under natural conditions. You hear it referred to now as a forever chemical because of that. Mm. Uh, not only would it, would it get out and stay in the environment, but what we saw when we started digging through documents from DuPont and from 3M in later years was the chemical also got into living things, including people, and didn't break down, and our bodies couldn't eliminate it. Uh, so what we started seeing was here was a, a chemical, completely man-made, came out decades before uh, the regulations even existed and before the EPA even existed, uh, incredibly toxic, according to the studies that were being done by the companies, incredibly persistent, had ability to bioaccumulate, build up in living things over time, uh, yet it was going completely unregulated. And you may say, well, how is that? How is it something this toxic being used in such high quantities for so many years? Well, because again, US EPA didn't come out until 1970, didn't come into existence until 1970. And some of the first laws regulating new chemicals coming out of the market didn't come out until about 1976. And it focused on new chemicals from that point forward, not these existing chemicals. It was up to the companies who were making or using those existing chemicals to alert the EPA if there was information about a substantial risk to human health or the environment. And what happened here? They just didn't do that. They mm -hmm. didn't alert the agencies. And this had gone essentially unknown by the regulators, by the scientists, by the public, until our litigation started uncovering all this in the early 2000s. But DuPont knew, right? That they knew that there were harmful chemicals in the water and that, could, that it was toxic to people. They just didn't do anything about it? Yeah, it was their scientists uh, that were doing the studies on the rats, on the monkeys, on the dogs, um, monitoring their workers, humans, and mm -hmm. seeing all kinds of adverse effects in the animal studies, including cancer. All right. They, they internally classified it as a confirmed animal carcinogen in the 80s, started seeing increased cancer rates in their own workers in the 80s. Uh, and then realized it was in the drinking water of tens of thousands of people in West Virginia and in Ohio. They knew this in the 1980s, uh, but unfortunately didn't tell anybody. Um, and again, it sat on that information uh, until uh, our litigation and I started providing that to the US EPA and to the public. Uh, that's how all this eventually finally came out uh, was unfortunately through having to go through litigation and unearth these documents and make them available to the public, to regulators and to the scientists. Mm. Right. And I remember one of the most shocking things I read was when I read the New York Times article about you, I think it was in about 2016. So it said something along the lines of, I think it was in the early 1990s that DuPont actually discovered, or at least, you know, kind of admitted to the studies. And then essentially they said, well, you know what, we're going to have this meeting and we're going to talk about potentially kind of like, uh, I think it was replacing these chemicals, right, with kind of like better alternatives. But then they found out that it was probably going to be hazardous to their bottom line, which is shocking to me, because even if their bottom, like if their bottom line, is billions of dollars and they have to spend a little bit more money, just a little bit more money just to make sure that like your customers and consumers aren't dying. Wouldn't that make more sense to do that? Like from a long-term perspective? 
Yeah, I think you're, yeah, the, the memo you may be referring to, I think was actually from 1984. Oh, wow. um, and I actually you know, try to address this a bit in, in the book I did as well, Exposure, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just going through this history of how was this decision made? How, how, you know, how did this happen that a company with scientists that they had, some of the best scientists on the planet um, and great lawyers that were advising them, you know, how did, how did we end up where we are? How did we end up with this? Uh, not only did they continue to keep using this stuff, they increased their use and increased the amount of this material going out into the environment during the 80s and during the 90s and only started decreasing it after they were sued. Uh, but yeah, there were alternatives that were identified early on. In fact, even when the 3M company, the manufacturer of the chemical, yanked it off the market and said in 2000, in the year 2000, we're not going to make this stuff anymore. DuPont, rather than saying the same thing and saying, we're not going to use it either, we'll move to alternatives, they jumped in uh, and actually started making it themselves uh, and, you know, increased the emissions. So it's, it's, it's really a disturbing history. And a lot of that information about that history was laid out to juries um, in federal court in Ohio during 2015 and 2016. And those juries came back and held DuPont liable for having done this. In fact, two of the juries uh, imposed punitive damages, which means that they found that the company acted with conscious disregard of the risks. So, you know, disturbing fact pattern for sure. Yeah. And I would even wonder in that case, how does one even or how does a company defend itself, like knowing that there's all this ample evidence of um, pretty much, maybe not necessarily misconduct, but there's at least evidence of toxicity within their product. How, I guess, how do you how do you sort of claim ignorance at that point? Well, again, I think if you look back through the history and look at the different tacks that were taken by the company through their through their PR department, through public statements, they were essentially arguing despite what we were seeing and what their own scientists were, were confirming in animal studies, for example. Well, the animal studies aren't relevant to humans. And then when we actually started pointing out the worker studies of humans, the argument was, well, th those are highly exposed workers. And that's not relevant to people drinking it at the levels that we're finding in the drinking water even though those levels were above their own internal guidelines from their own scientists. Right. So it was this debate about how much is harmful. And it, believe it or not, that continues to this day, even after our settlement in 2004, when we, we were able to set up independent scientific panel to go through all of the scientific data and even do new studies and that panel, after seven years and studying 70,000 people and looking at all of the data, not just what was published, but also all of these internal studies I've been referring to and doing new studies, they confirmed that the chemical drinking it was linked with six diseases, including two types of cancer. Yet we still have companies out there claiming there's no, there's no evidence suggesting that these chemicals cause harm. To humans. So, uh, you know, it's been rather remarkable to watch that. And, you know, it's incredible uh, to be able to see that the story about what we really do know is finally getting out to the public through things like the movie Dark Waters right. or a documentary, The Devil We Know, or the, or the book as well, documenting this is what happened. This is what we do know. 
to try to counter uh, some of that misinformation that continues to this day. Right. And we do know that there was a discrepancy between their policies and sort of their recommendations for the amount, like let's say that's allowed in the drinking water, as opposed to whatever their scientists were saying. Well, they had an internal guideline uh, that it was essentially one part per billion in drinking water right. in the levels that were being found in the drinking water outside of this plant in West Virginia were well above that. Right. Uh, and they, in fact, never changed their internal standards. What they did is they went to, for example, the state of West Virginia to try to get the state to come out with a higher number. Oh, wow. uh, so that they could claim the numbers, you know, that the even though these these levels were higher than their own internal standard, that they were nevertheless not a problem. Um, and, you know, they did that in 2002. And that's in, shortly after that. That's when the US EPA finally stepped in and started investigating this and announced that in 2003 that they might even have to ban the chemical. Uh, they sued DuPont. US EPA ended up suing them for withholding information. And eventually that was resolved and the company eventually agreed to phase out any further manufacture of the chemical in the U.S. But they were given 10 years to do yeah. that. And I was going to ask, what do they even mean by phase out? Okay, wow, 10, oh my God. So why do you think that happens? Why is it a decade? Like why, I guess, why can't the sort of legal requirement be that you, well, that's it, it's discontinued, you can't use it anymore? Well, I mean, I, get, I guess they could have required that, but keep in mind, this was an agreed program. This was something where the companies sat down and agreed with US EPA, this is what we will do. And they agreed on giving themselves till the year 2015 to wow. phase this out. And unfortunately, what we saw happen was while this particular chemical was finally phased out um, in the United States, Keep in mind, production then shifted overseas, all right? But um, as this particular chemical, the one that had eight carbons, PFOA with eight carbons, they called C8, mm -hmm. and the related chemical, PFOS, that was used in things like Scotchgard or firefighting foam, as those C8s were finally phased out of manufacture in the U.S., the companies knocked a couple carbons off, uh, made C6s and C4s, and called them new, like Gen X, the replacement for PFOA. Those chemicals then came out during this 10-year phase out. And now we're realizing those chemicals are out there in the water, in people, you know, in, in the environment. So you now have scientists and regulators all over the world saying, this approach of looking at these chemicals one at a time maybe needs to be changed. And let's address this whole chemical class these, are, these chemicals are all part of a big class of chemicals called PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkylated substances. There's hundreds, if not thousands of those. PFOA and PFOS are just two within that class. Now we know there's all these others. And do we have to do what we did with PFOA? And you see that in the film, that, that story of how long this took. And I addressed that in the book as well. 20 years. To, to, to actually be able to confirm what was already, frankly, in internal company documents about toxicity, health threat, and to have that confirmed and finally get to the point where we start phasing it out, simply to tweak it and start all over again. So people are suggesting, let's deal with this in a more comprehensive uh, approach. And you see a lot of that discussion going on now because of what, ha what we saw happen here with this one chemical. Yeah, and in, go ahead, Alan. Yeah, that, that must have caused a, uh, caused a lot of stress on you, you know, working on this case for, for 20 years, 
uh, thinking that uh, when that uh, uh, epidemiological study with over uh, 60,000 participants was going to do something and then having it take however, I, I forgot how many years did it take for that to even, well, for the results to be um, uh, analyzed by the scientists? I believe it was, uh, what is it, seven years more? Yeah, the, the, the process, the panel was actually set up around 2005 right. and they completed their work in 2012. Uh, so yeah. this was a long process and you have to keep in mind, you know, we had 70,000 people come forward and participate, giving blood, giving medical information and all that information is then turned over to these scientists to analyze. So it took a long time, a lot longer, I think, than anybody expected. But the end result was some of the most impressive human health studies ever done, um, you know, world-class uh, studies that were fortunately had big enough uh, populations involved, enough people to be able to finally confirm a lot of these health effects that the company had been disputing for years, particularly with the argument, well, we don't have enough cases. It's, it's not a big enough sample size. We don't know whether that's really a problem or not. We are able to finally confirm that by having all of those people participate. But <laughs> the, the consequence of that was it took a long time uh, because of how many people participated. Yeah. Were there any uh, points in the process? Because this is such a long process. Uh, there were many disheartening moments, many hopeful moments as well, right? But were, were there any points when you just wanted to give up? <laughs> Uh, but but then, you know, you didn't let yourself, but it, that was probably a challenge for you, I imagine. You know, that there were a lot of ups and downs throughout <laughs> the process, you know, over over several decades. Um, uh, it was a long, drawn out process. Um, and there were a lot of times where uh, there was a lot of a lot of stress involved. And again, you see this in the film, Dark Waters, you know, where. You know, there while we're waiting, for example, for the science panel to to finish all of this work and all of these important studies. Meantime, people are still getting sick. People are dying, including Mr. Tennant, the original farmer that had come to me, and his wife, who you know died from cancer. So, I'm hearing about this. You know, the, these these are real people in real communities that are dealing with this as the science is is going on and as the company continues to fight. You know that. Pe real people are being impacted. And uh, a lot of that was also happening as the US economy was imploding. You know, this is 2008, 2011 timeframe. So a lot of stresses in a lot of different ways. Um, um, and, you know, but, you know, to do something innovative and to get something unique and new like this, you have to take risks. And this was certainly a risk uh, that a lot of, you know, that the community took as well. Um, but wanting to know the true real answer, you know, about whether or not these chemicals could cause these diseases. And what was it like for you in building the case and actually meeting these people and hearing their stories? You know, it was incredibly uh, humbling to, 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 to go out and meet with the folks in the community, including, you know, originally with Mr. Tennant and his family to see the real impact that this was having. You know, these, these weren't just livestock, you know, these were members of the family uh, that were dropping dead uh, to him, you know, these animals and, you know, the real impact it was having on that family. And then to see as the, the surrounding community, Mr. Tennant's neighbors started learning this was in their drinking water and to start hearing the stories of how many people 
had cancer, how many people had different health problems. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's disturbing, uh, but it also impressed upon us, I think, the importance of what we were doing. Um, you know, this was a major public health threat. And to know that this kind of thing was happening in this community and to realize this same stuff is likely in water all over the country, if not all over the world, and it's coursing through the veins of virtually every person on the planet, um, you know, really, really impressed upon those involved, how important it was to make sure that the information about what the science shows, what we really know about this, that it gets out and that, that not only does it get out to the scientists, to the regulators, but to the public that's being exposed to this day in a lot of places. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable. This has been going on for some, you know, 60, 70 years that this chemical has been, been used. And even though we had the phase out of further manufacture, all of the stuff that's been emitted over the last 50, 70 years, these forever chemicals, they're still out there. Uh, and we're just now starting to realize that this stuff is there. It's likely been there for a long time and struggling now with the scientific problem of what do we do with it? And who should be paying those costs? You've got communities that are facing millions of dollars to get this out of their drinking water. States, you know, that are struggling with all kinds of sampling and monitoring costs and, and realizing, you know, entire states are contaminated. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very troubling, uh, particularly as uh, you see that the fight over the responsibility continuing. Uh, despite the fact these are, again, man-made chemicals only made by a certain number of companies that are fingerprints basically back to them, yet their responsibility continues to be fought and, and disputed. Um, and it's very troubling as people continue to be exposed. How many variants of them are there? And I guess, and what sort of, what other products are they used in? Well, if you focus just on the, the, the two that I mentioned originally, the ones that we probably know the most about, just because there's been all this litigation, uh, PFOA and PFOS, the C8s. Uh, yeah, these are chemicals that have been used in an incredible, diverse array of products over the years. Uh, not only nonstick cookware, but things like waterproof and stain resistant clothing and carpeting, fast food wrappers and packaging, microwave popcorn bags, computer mm. chips, firefighting foam, uh, wire cabling coverings. I mean, you, you name it. And uh, it's, it's an incredible diverse array of different products in different you know, places that it's been used and likely released out into the environment or maybe sitting in landfills. Because remember, even as we sit here, this <laughs> stuff is still not regulated in the United States as a hazardous substance or a listed toxic material. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these landfills may be completely unregulated or unlined. You know, this was non-hazardous, not regulated materials. So um, the, the scope of the potential contamination, given how many different products these were used in, is rather mind-boggling. Um, and you know, most, of the, most of us, unfortunately, had no idea what products these were used in. Because again, they're not regulated. So you do, it's not like you have them listed on labels so that when you go into a store, you know, you know whether you're, you're purchasing products made with these things. A lot of folks are trying right now to get that kind of information out to the public. You know, where were these products used? What kinds of 
I mean, what these chemicals used, what kinds of products were they used in, in the past? There are companies that are now coming forward and very publicly saying, we're not using them anymore. Here's alternatives that we've switched to. So at least people can start making a choice because none of us had a choice you know, before. We didn't even know we were being exposed. But uh, as this information comes out and companies start to respond to consumers and uh, the public who's demanding you know, that change be made here, um, we're finally starting to realize, you know, where we've been exposed to them and how we might at least try to start making choices to avoid that exposure. Right. I mean, uh, my, my me knowing for the first time that we have PFOA uh, and PFOS just coursing through our veins was just from watching the movie. I had no idea until that disclaimer at the end of the movie uh, where they said, um, it's in 99% of human beings all over the planet. And it's, that was mind boggling to me. Uh, I, I was then started to have moments of self-reflection. I'm thinking, what products was, uh, was I using? What, what, uh, where was I drinking water? What, uh, what was the source of it? Right. And it starts to make you think about that, uh, kind of stuff and, and the importance of knowing, you know, uh, what, what is in your products, what's, what's in the water. Right. Right. And, and I guess I wonder just to kind of piggyback off of that. So if like, let's say, you know, kind of the average people like us, like we struggle with kind of understanding like what these materials are, where they sort of located, um, how they affect us, how they affect the environment. Is it, I guess, safe to say that the reason why regulation and why prosecution in terms of the criminal justice and the political systems, why it's been so difficult to actually sort of make substantial changes or pin anything down on these companies? Because really fundamentally, the politicians and kind of lawyers judges, they understand the science just as well as we do. Well, you know, again, in the, in the, my book exposure, I really try to talk about that, that phenomenon, all right. The, 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 the difficulty in, in, even though we start to, we're finally able to start getting the science out and finally able to get, start getting this information out to scientists, to regulators, to folks that can actually start changing the laws. Uh, that's an incredibly complex problem uh, because it's inter it interacts with our current legal system, you know, and, and who has the burdens to prove certain things and how our scientific data is generated and how that's published and peer reviewed and what you can rely on under our, our, our regulatory standards and all of these different existing systems <laughs> interact to create this problem where here we are in the year 2021, still trying to figure out, you know, why are these things not, uh, you know, regulated? Why don't we have official federal standards for these in drinking water in the United States? I think I sent my letter to the US EPA uh, raising this (coughs) issue, March 6, 2001. Wow. Almost 20 years ago. And it's taking this long. We just had the US EPA finally come out and announce that they will move forward with setting federal drinking water uh, limits for PFOA and PFOS. Now, keep in mind, that's just these first two. (laughs) So look how long that's taken. Um, And it's, it's incredibly difficult. And we see debate going on now at the legislative level. At, in the states and at the federal level and in the international level now as well, you know, trying to come up with ways to address this. Um, and part of the problem is just the unique nature of these chemicals. 
uh, they are because of the way they persist and bioaccumulate even the tiniest amounts of them in water. If you're exposed to them over time and they build up, you know, can our, our scientists are really concerned about those levels. So, you know, finding the right level uh, of what would be in the regulation, what would be in the standard has been a continuing challenge for folks, but just because of the nature of these chemicals as well. And that contributes to this situation we're in right now. And would it be safe to say that these companies and their scientists are merchants of doubts or of doubt? Well, that has certainly been something that we have watched happen for the last 20 years or so. This, uh, you know, continuing to manufacture doubt in the sense of continuing to say, we just don't know enough, right. no matter how much data comes out. And let's just take PFOA as an example. Mm -hmm. Even after seven years of study with 12 different massive epidemiological studies and, and conclusions by independent scientists, you know, the most, some of the most comprehensive animal, human data you can have on any chemical, mm -hmm. you know, confirming links with disease. We still have people, including people standing up in front of the U.S. Congress and saying, we don't have enough information yet to say whether or not these chemicals are, are linked with causing any harm to any human at any level. Right. And it's just remarkable to see those kinds of statements continuing to be made uh, as if, you know, this, this, the, 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 the guide, the, the goalpost, you know, of what's going to be enough to say we should move and act on these chemicals just keeps getting moved down the, down the line. Uh, and so a lot of folks are, are saying now, look, you know, we have more than enough data uh, to be taking action uh, on these materials, particularly with respect to PFOA. Um, and, you know, to continue to say, that the, the exposed people need to be coming forward and, and bring more data and more proof. Um, yet the companies can sit back and say, well, you haven't proven it, uh, is, is rather remarkable. But it's, again, ties into what we were mentioning before, you know, with the way the U.S. legal system is set up and who has the burden to prove things. Right. Right. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Uh, go, no, go, go ahead. Uh, uh, do, so do you think that there's actually then a clash with sort of the legal conception of burden of proof as opposed to the scientific understanding of evidence? Well, you know, I think those are, those are two issues that really are uh, very complex and very complicated, particularly when it gets into legal cases like this, um, you know, about what is sufficient to, for the scientific community to determine that there's a problem here versus what will a court require? And are those different? Should they be different? Should they be the same? Um, and that's, that's part of the debate that's going on and right now. Um, and unfortunately, it's usually been incredibly difficult for exposed people to be able to, to meet this burden that exists in our court system of what's enough to say that this is harmful and steps should be taken to stop it. Do you think there's a sort of a, because the amount of litigation uh, that would be required to address the whole class of chemicals, all the forever chemicals, not just the C8s, the C6s, the C4s, and so on. Um, do you think that movies like Dark Waters or, or books like Exposure um, or the documentary mentioned earlier, do you think by getting the public aware of all this, maybe at, 
if enough people know about it, they sort of vote with their dollars, like they won't support companies that still have these, these, the, the, this class of chemicals in their products or what, or I know you've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, how do you think maybe we can address uh, all of these chemicals as opposed to addressing each particular one and then having years and years of litigation and, and, and that just delaying the process? Well, I think that's that's precisely the issue that's being debated right now, um, is how should we pr proceed moving forward? Should we continue with the type of process that we've used historically in the United States, which is the one chemical at a time? Although there are exceptions to that, for example, with PCBs or dioxins, we, mm. we, we addressed them as the class of all of those chemicals. We didn't go through and, and, and try to address each individual PCB or each individual dioxin that way. So there are, there, there are, that's something that's being debated right now. Um, and I think it's, it's incredibly important to have uh, a way to get this kind of information out to the public so that they understand this is how it works. This is what, this is how regulations are set for chemicals. And to have that done in ways that are understandable, like for example, through dark waters, you know, or through the documentary that people can look at and, and understand, you know, what are the practical implications of the way these systems currently work. Um, and I think that's generated a lot of discussion, um, a lot of uh, ongoing debate right now about what is the best way to move forward. Uh, there are places, particularly overseas, you know, that are trying to now address this uh, with multiple chemicals in the class, not mm -hmm. just one at a time. We see that same discussion occurring now in the United States as well, but there's a lot of pushback um, from, uh, from certain companies and others who, who suggest, no, no, you know, it, you, need to, you need to have you know, absolute proof that this particular chemical causes harm and focus on each one individually. So that's, that's an ongoing debate right now. This might be a strange question, but what would, so with the knowledge the public is, is gaining from, from the movie, let's say, what, um, what would you have them do uh, besides being aware of um, this class of chemicals what do you think it is that they could uh, do? Is it that they go on Twitter and complain about these companies? Is it that they go uh, protest? Is is it just? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure actually. What like for example, I'm definitely concerned about this as, as a member of the public, and I'm wondering what what can I do? Um, yeah, that's a great point. And actually, you're doing exactly what I would propose people do, which is talk about this mm. and and actually have these discussions. Um, you know, you can't sit back and just assume somebody else is taking care of this. Somebody else will handle it. I don't need to worry about that. Other people are dealing with it. Um, you know, if anything, I think you see from the story with Wilbur Tennant in the community in West Virginia, you know, people need to stand up and say, I'm going to do something about this and, and not just assume somebody else will handle it. Or assume, oh, those are those are big companies, or that's that's you know the, this is the way it's been done forever, and the way regulations are set, and we can't possibly change that. No, you know you need to be able to stand up, um, speak out, and if something needs to be fixed, um, advocate for that and 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 push for it. Don't just don't just think somebody else is going to do it. 
Um, and one of the things that we've seen, particularly with the rollout of the film and people asking the question you're asking, you know, how do I help? How do I get involved? Um, there was even a, a social media outreach campaign um, uh, called fightforeverchemicals.com that came out with Dark Waters, where information was made available for folks who want to find, you know, different groups that are working on these issues or advocating for these issues or, you know, legislation that might be getting proposed or drafted or people that are working on this, um, different communities across the country that are dealing with these issues so that people can talk to each other and, and make sure that these issues are being addressed and aren't just forgotten. Um, you know, and I, I think we're seeing momentum building as, as people, not just here in the US, but worldwide are now realizing, wait a minute, <laughs> what, what's going on here with this stuff? Particularly as we learn more about the toxic effects, the potential effects of these chemicals. One of the things, for example, researchers are focusing uh, on uh, more recently with, with, with these chemicals, particularly things like PFOA and PFOS and are the potential effects on our immune system. You know, while we're struggling worldwide with the pandemic, we've got chemicals in water, in blood, all over the planet that may impair our immune system and may actually impact the effectiveness of vaccines. So that's something that's being um, studied even at the federal level here in the United States, because mm. uh, it's of great concern to scientists. But again, I think most people don't even realize, you know, that we've that this is going on uh, because people aren't talking about it, and it's been very difficult to get these discussions going. I'm incredibly encouraged, you know, to 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 be able to talk with folks like you that have a platform, you know, to be able to have these discussions and be able to spur people um, to to think about this and talk about it and and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, yeah, I agree, we ought to be doing something about it because that's what's going to make the change is people demanding it be different. And, you know, particularly with companies that might have um, be looking at, should we switch? You know, is, does it make sense to switch? If there's consumer demand that they do, um, that's gonna help. Uh, and that's gonna really push things if the, if the market and the consumers start demanding that these things happen as well. Mm. What's some of the pre preliminary evidence in terms of like the vaccines and how they interact with these chemicals? Well, I think there's there's only been a couple of papers that have come out so far, but those papers have raised enough concern uh, that even the CDC, <coughs> Centers for Disease Control in ATSDR, Agency for Toxic Substances Disease Registry, recently, and I think you can find this posted online on their website, announced that they will look into, you know, whether or not there's a connection there. So it's a it's a question, I think, that people are, there's enough out there that people are concerned enough that they want to look into it and make sure that that's not a problem. Uh, but again, it's one of these where we're just now learning about it and the scientists are just now um, realizing this is something we need to be looking at. Um, whereas if you go back in, you know, decades ago, some of the, some of the very initial uh, animal studies were suggesting possible immune system impacts, you know, decades ago. So it's, again, uh, disturbing, you know, that information was withheld for as long as it was. And what are the effects on the environment? I know we spoke about the effects on kind of, you know, the human and sort of animal, uh, I guess, systems or, you know, sort of different physiologies, but what are the effects on the actual environment and on nature? 
Well, I think there's they're widespread, um, and one of the the main concerns, of course, is it persists in the environment. It's it's going to stay in our water. It moves quickly once it gets into groundwater. Uh, it can filter down through the soils. It can be taken up through the roots of certain plants. Uh, it can then be passed on to uh, you know f- food crops. Uh, or to animals. Um, for example, one of the things that I think folks have only recently began to focus on, although this has been known for quite some time, is that a lot of these chemicals uh, get concentrated uh, into wastewater treatment sludge. You know, they, they may come uh, in waste and be funneled into your municipal wastewater treatment system. And historically over the years, a lot of these places have generated what they call biosolids or biosludge that's been given away to farmers as fertilizer. Um, you know, and that was encouraged as, as a recycling program for many years. But unfortunately, we're now realizing a lot of that may have concentrated PFAS in it. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's great concern that this stuff gets out there. Uh, there's been a lot of studies on the impacts to different types of wildlife uh, and the adverse effects that have been seen in multiple different species. Um, so it's it's great it's of great concern to to the environment as well as to humans. Yeah, well, and it seems like just in terms of um, even going into climate change, like I think a lot of people, and especially, I mean, I don't really know if the companies themselves struggle with this, but I think a lot of us have a kind of a, have a tendency to not sort of focus on the bigger picture and the fact that the whole sort of um, the, like let's say the ecosphere is something that you can't sort of disassociate, you can't sort of break it up, and so if we're kind of if we're using these chemicals and we're sort of um, what's the word, if we're uh, kind of plugging them into or we're sort of throwing them into landfills, the idea that something like that wouldn't affect the environment just, I guess, wouldn't really make much sense. But I do think that just in general, that people, we have a kind of a tendency to sort of break things apart and to divide things up and to say, well, you know, this is a part of the environment that's over there and we live over here. So there's no possible way that that's going to affect us. So why should we worry about that? Can you tell us why that mindset is wrong? Yeah, well, I think these chemicals are a perfect example of that. I mean, because even though folks, when this story first came out, I think a lot of people just kind of viewed it as, oh, that's a problem in West Virginia, or, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an issue down there in Ohio, or even in Minnesota, you know, where this was made. Mm-hmm. I think the most telling aspect here is, if you look at the results of human blood sampling, you know, it's being found in 99% of, of humans. Um, and that's, that tells you, you know, how widespread this stuff is. It's, it's being found in polar bears, in Arctic ice caps. So even wow. though, it, even if we were able to phase out further manufacture of PFOA and PFOS in the United States, if that stuff moves somewhere else, these chemicals don't respect national boundaries. They don't respect state lines. They move throughout the environment. You know, these, these chemicals have been described as having the ability to get up if they're emitted out of a smokestack, okay, or get up into the air, of getting into the water droplets and then going over the, you know, traveling the planet and falling down in rain, um, you know, which is what people are hypothesizing, you know, is, is resulting in this stuff being found in polar bears, in Arctic ice. Uh, it's, it's, it gets everywhere. And it's everyone's problem. So we can't, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think you see international bodies are looking at it and trying to figure out ways to address this in a much more comprehensive way, as opposed to just 
you know, jurisdiction, it's, we're going to deal with it over here, which just moves it over there, or we're going to make sure it gets out of water, but we're putting it into landfills and, or we're going to incinerate it. And, you know, it, 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 it needs to be addressed in a very comprehensive way. And I think to, for a lot of folks that can be sort of overwhelming when you step back and just sort of look at the scope of this um, and the magnitude of the problem that we're all confronted with. Um, what do you do with this stuff? You know, how do you, how do you get it out of the soil? How do you get it out of the water? What do you do about the fact that all of us are like walking landfills where this chemical is now in us? That's where it ends up. It ends up depositing in our blood and gets passed on to our children. Um, so it's, it's the magnitude of the problem is huge. And, um, you know, I think people just need to realize, nevertheless, it's one we can take on. And it's one that can be addressed. It can be handled. Um, and it just, it's, it may take some time, but it's, I, I would hate for people just to say, this is too big. This is too big of an issue. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, we can do something about it. And um, I think we're starting to see a lot of really good people, a lot of good scientists, a lot of good regulators and legislators are, are really thinking of creative ways to, to finally start addressing it. Yeah. And a great analogy to this is COVID, essentially. I mean, if we think about it, right? I remember when the kind of, I'm sure Alan remembers the early days of COVID where it was like, oh no, this is like a problem for other countries. The US is never going to get it. You know, it's it's a Chinese problem or whatever, an Asian problem. Go ahead. Oh no, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, no, the moment I heard um, at Wuhan, you know, a city of 7 million plus people was, was locked down, you know, or quarantined. Uh, and, you know, that was just like, that wasn't even front page news, but I saw that and I thought, okay, that's, that's strange. I've never heard of anything like that in my life. Right. Uh, I'm sure it's happened before, but when you 7 million people in quarantine, like what's going on, I started to be concerned then, and, but it wasn't a big story yet. Then as the weeks progressed, then it started to become a thing, but sorry, what, what were you saying? No, but that was it. So in terms of like um, analogies, right, and thinking of like sort of examples for people that work in terms of like what they've experienced and what they're used to, I think maybe it might even help to bring up COVID as an example to say like, well, guys, remember when we all thought that COVID was an issue for like other countries, or it was like an Asian issue or an issue for like, let's say, you know, anybody outside of the US, remember how wrong we were and remember how exponentially it increased and how it affected everybody. So I think maybe what would be helpful, and I mean, Rob, I would love to hear your opinion on this, is if we should start using analogies to get people to see that the ecosphere is literally this one big home and this one big hole that you can't just separate. Yeah, and I, I recently did a um, um, an op-ed piece for the Guardian. You know, just talking about sort of this big picture concept. You know that um, yeah, we've got a really serious pandemic problem going on, and there's no way to minimize that. I mean, that is that is critically important. Yet things like this. PFAS contamination, um, you know, are global as well and could have serious worldwide health comp implications. You know, particularly if you stop and think about this, you know, a lot of health studies, the way they're done is they try to compare an exposed group to a non-exposed group and see if the exposed group has higher incidence of certain diseases or health effects and all of that. Right. Now, one of the things I think that people are struggling with, with PFAS, is you don't have an unexposed group, all right? And you may say, well, you know, you've got these chemicals that are linked with all these different types of diseases, you know, high cholesterol, uh, the cancers. 
And yet you see similar increased rates in the general population. Um, and you know, there's a concern of how do you, you know, when you've got contamination on a scale like this, uh, it's difficult to be able, you know, to, to, to actually uh, do this, the, the, the types of health studies that were done in the past that were able to show, you know, this particular effect when everybody's been contaminated. So your background, all right, um, is contamination. So it, it, again, it's, it's one of those complicating factors that scientists are struggling with right now. And um, yeah, the, does water filtration help at all with, with these chemicals in the water? Is it like, it's not in our uh, Poland spring bottles, right? It, it would just be maybe in our, uh, I, I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. So if I probably uh, run my sink, I'm sure, okay, there's probably something going on there. Maybe not, but I could assume something like that's going on there, but maybe not necessarily in, um, you know, bottled water or something, right? Or you can't uh, account for that. It depends on the source of the water. Um, and fortunately, uh, there are fairly effective um, treatment methods for um, what we call the longer chain uh, PFAS chemicals, things like the C8s, mm -hmm. uh, granular activated carbon systems, GAC filters are very effective in removing PFOA and PFOS. In fact, those are the kinds of filtration systems that were put on the public water systems and private wells down in West Virginia, Ohio, and have been very effective in getting those almost down to non-detect levels. The problem people are, are struggling with now is as we, as we realize that there are these new replacement PFAS chemicals coming out of the market, things with a couple fewer carbons, C4s or C6s, uh, some of these treatment technologies have are been viewed as maybe not as effective for some of those. And now folks are looking at whether or not things like reverse osmosis or other, you know, more, uh, more expensive treatment systems are required, particularly if you start having multiple PFAS problems in the water. So, um, yeah, there are ways to treat some of them. Uh, I think that the, the, the types of methods uh, are sort of evolving as we learn more and more about these chemicals and more of them. Mm. Um, and it's becoming more expensive particularly if these chemicals start to be labeled hazardous, for example, as hazardous substances under federal law, then the costs involved of, you know, let's say you treat that water and, and remove that stuff from uh, the water through carbon or filtration system. If that stuff becomes hazardous, then you have increased costs for disposing of it. So it's, it's a very complex problem. Um, uh, you know, the, um, the, the whole treatment issue is, is incredibly complex. And I know you, know, you, you mentioned bottled water, and I know that's been a, a recent uh, area of investigation. I know there was a consumer reports, for example, that recently looked at that issue mm. um, and I think found some uh, detects of PFAS at fairly low part per trillion levels, but nevertheless, some of it was there. So there's information out there for folks that are concerned about that. Um, uh, but, you know, again, it gets to the ubiquitous nature of this stuff in the water. Um, and it's, uh, it's difficult to avoid it. Yeah. 
And so one of my favorite parts of the movie, and I mean, I'm sure this is obvious, is the ending where kind of the, you know, your character, Mark Ruffalo, plays you, where he pretty much, where you won the suits, where you won the class action suits and you finally got these people compensation. So what was that like for you in real life to be able to call, call them or come to their homes and to say, like, we did it? <laughs> Excuse me. You know, it was incredibly rewarding to be able to finally get compensation to folks who, you know, were injured by this stuff in their water. It took a lot longer than than we'd hoped to be able to do that. But it was one of the only places in the country where we've been able to do that, um, where we're able to get these studies and we're able to get, um, the, you know, the science established and to be able to, to actually uh, pursue these claims and get people compensated. Um, so that was incredibly rewarding um, and, you know, hoping that people in other places in the country that are, that are being exposed to the same stuff uh, can get similar benefits. But we've got folks that are continuing to deny, you know, responsibility for this and continuing to, uh, to, to force people to go through courts and to litigate and to spend years fighting over it. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Right. And so before we go, one of our final questions is going to be, what was it like working on the movie? <laughs> yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, yeah, there were some incredible people. Um, you know, when Mark Ruffalo reached out after reading an article in the New York times magazine in 2016 about yeah. this whole situation, right. you know, he was incredibly passionate about finding a way to bring this story out to the public. You know, he was very active in environmental issues and was shocked that he had not heard of this in 2016 when he was reading that article and was, you know, why was this not on the front page of the New York times? Why was it in the magazine? Why, why were, why was this not a bigger story? And really wanted to find a way to bring the story out so that people understood the significance of the problem and what it really did in real communities to real people. And he was able to really pull together a great team. The people of participant media were fantastic in, in putting the, the movie together in a way I think that really highlights what really happened to real people. Um, you know, a lot of it was filmed in our offices in Cincinnati. Um, you see some of the real offices there, some of the real people you see in the film as well. Um, so yeah, they, they really wanted to make sure that it was, um, um, you know, as true to, to, to life as possible. They did a great job, I think. Yeah. What was it like to have somebody play you? <laughs> yeah, that was a little surreal, just right. to say the least. I mean, the, but Mark Ruffalo was like the nicest guy, uh, just so, so great to work with. I got to work very closely with him as this was being done, um, able to, you know, help, help consult on, uh, on certain aspects of it. And my kids got to watch and, you know, you actually see my three sons are in one of the scenes in the film. So they, they, that was terrific. Um, my wife as well. So um, uh, it was, yeah, I, I couldn't have asked for a better group to work with. It was a great experience. Yeah, and it was such an awesome film. So Alan, final questions before we go for Rob. Oh yeah. If, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, uh, where, where can we find that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I've, on my, on my law firm's website, uh, I've, there's a, a link there to, to my information and some of the resources that are available, uh, you know, through social media as well, try to, to, to keep people updated. And yeah, I'm trying to, again, make sure that people have access to what's going on with the science, with the facts, um, so that, you know, they can, they can actually find the, the real information about what we know about this. Um, so I, I'm doing my best to make that information available to folks um, and um, always happy to, to help out in that regard if I can. 
And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's Robert Balot. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, Robert, thank you so much for coming on. This was so insightful. Thank you sure. so much. Thank you. Thanks, my guys. It was great talking with you. Absolutely. You. We'll be in touch soon. All okay. right. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. What a great <laughs> guest. Guys, watch Dark Water. Seriously. It's such a great film. And get the book Exposure. It's out on Amazon, anywhere you get your books. Um, do you know, do you remember the name of the documentary? Uh, yeah. So it's called, I think it's called The Devil You Know or The Devil You Don't Know. Yeah. I think it might be called The Devil You Don't Know. I hope one it's the, the first one. <laughs> one of the other. <laughs> Well, anyway, guys, uh, you know, thank you guys so much for watching. You could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. The bell. <laughs> All right, thanks guys, again so for watching. We'll see you next week. See you next week.